Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are talking today with American artist Jean Lau. Uh, her work revolves around the intersection of popular culture, environmentalism, commerce, politics, and art history. Your place in the multiverse, Jean Lau, is a survey of her work drawn from the past 17 years, featuring many of her most important installations. And we're going to talk about that uh, today. And that's happening right now at the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art on the campus of Utah State University. We have with us uh, on the phone uh, artist uh, Jean Lau. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you taking the time. We have with us in studio uh, Katie Lee Coven, who is executive director of the Museum of Art and Chief Curator. Welcome. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for uh, hosting us today. So let me turn to Katie Lee Coven first. Uh, how did this exhibit come about? Well, this exhibit came about because we have a couple of pieces by Jean Lau in our museum's collection. Um, the first piece we acquired um, was in 2003. And we have a collector and donor to the museum, George Wanless, who is responsible for making us aware of her work and bringing it to our attention. And he saw her work at an exhibition in California. And, um, and we acquired that first piece, Empire Style, in 2003, and then another piece in 2009, Overstock. And from there, we've had some conversations with Jean, and I've just always been, her work has been exhibited a couple of times, uh, these pieces in our collection and various exhibitions. And it occurred to me during a conversation that as a museum that prides itself in providing new lenses and views into what American art is, especially art in the Western United States, uh, that Jean is one of those artists who has been, in my opinion, overlooked and is so deserving of having more recognition and for people to see her work. And so we approached her and asked if she'd be interested in having a solo exhibition at the museum. And I went from there. I want to talk about several, uh, Jean Lau, several of the installations in the exhibit. And we'll loop back around and talk about this, but I, and this is badly out of sequence because I think this is the last installation that people see as they go through sequence at the museum. But Town Crier, and it's something you said about Town Crier. You said, do I ever question the efficacy of visual arts to stir up conversation? Yes, perhaps, you say, given that Town Crier is basically mute and vintage. But ultimately, you say visual art is a language and really can be used to talk about anything. Provoking conversation, what I hope to do. So provoking conversation, I guess, one of the things you hope people do. Absolutely, yeah. So Town Crier is a kind of vintage stack of old amplifiers and uh, reel-to-reel tape, all made kind of pretty loosely from cardboard and house paint. And I kind of thought of it as a part of a self-portrait or a portrait of what I try to do as an artist, yes, stir up conversation or challenge status quo, the way we think about things or approach givens to kind of create a new way of looking at things. I think incorporated in this whole exhibit, there's a documentary, right? I think it's part of it, part of this, right? Um, (laughs) Yeah. Where uh, art critic, I guess that's who he is. George McElroy talks about Gene uh, Lau. Bill McElroy. Uh, fa- right? What is uh-huh. it? Bill McElroy. Bill McElroy. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, tell us about Bill and, and how did you conceive of this? Actually, I, I did a trade with an artist friend, 
a filmmaker. And so I thought, well, this is a great opportunity to present some old work that I created kind of pre-digitally and so that I could have that work available online. And so present that older work, but at the same time create a new work of art. And Bill, the character, hosts a weekly show where he talks about um, local and national artists. And he's sort of casually misogynistic. Um, frankly, it's excruciating for me to look at. <laughs> but really, it is. Yeah. But um, Bill's got a magnificent comb-over, for example. He's got a magnificent comb-over. <laughs> yes, he does. Is, is, I don't know, fun fun to play? Is fun to play, Bill? Um, I don't know that fun would be the right word, but interesting for sure, yeah. Does Bill encompass experiences that you have had? You, you mentioned misogyny. Well, and that might be too strong a word, but just sort of a casual dismissal that, um, sure, I've, that I experienced. Yeah, it's a very interesting piece. I want to talk about, that would be a good segue to uh, talking about uh, the, the piece called POW, capital P-O-W, uh-huh. exclamation, right? So t- tell us, there are at least a couple of meanings of that, I think. So POW, um, portraits of women, POW is in Kabam. So with this installation, it's a site-specific, really I think of it as a, as a single painting, but it's a, a room that features Paintings, quote-unquote, painted directly on the wall by sort of modernist masters like uh, Picasso, de Kooning, Bacon, one by Jackson Pollock, all abstracted portraits of women, sort of fierce, energetic portrayals. So just sort of selfishly, that's just a really fun project for me to do, the muscle you bring into a room and, I don't know, Katie, how long did that take to put up? (laughs) I don't recall. It seemed to go actually quite fast. But I want to actually, because we're on the radio, also describe a couple of other components to that room, which are Jean had some paint swatches. She had us paint specific rooms, this being one of them. So it's sort of a, a mauve pink, the whole room. And as she says, she literally painted these paintings directly on the wall. So when you walk into the space, you think, oh, this room in some ways is the most traditional sort of feeling space that you might see in a museum where you see paintings hung on a wall. But then you realize, huh, why is this room painted this color? And what are these paintings of? And oh, these are not actually paintings hung on the wall. These are paintings painted on the wall. And then you look to the floor and in the corners and you see what appears to be a rug and a plant, which are both sculptural, you know, pieces that Jean has already also created to to create this installation. So I just think it's important for listeners to sort of envision this space because, as I say, on the one hand, it's at first glance, maybe one of the more traditional sort of experiences one might perceive in a museum, whereas the rest of the exhibition is completely, I would say, unconventional for the most part in terms of what you expect to see and what you experience. So Jean Lau, these paintings, they're painted directly onto the wall. Along with their frames and shadows. And presumably, once this exhibition is done, they'll be painted over, right? That's part of the pleasure of it for me, that they're ephemeral and 
also that it's like the antithesis of those actual paintings, millions and millions of dollars worth of fine art. I mean, the real, the real ones, because I was quoting um, actual existing paintings. But in this case, it's just poof, they're gone. So you're confirming, Katie, that uh, this... That's right. Poof, they will be gone. They will. Yeah. And, you know, that actually speaks to another component to her work that I find really intriguing for us to be able to show her work in a museum context, because museums typically, you know, people think of them as these institutions that really value preciousness. I mean, even the term value is really uh, very upfront in your face in this exhibition, the concept of value. What does that mean? What do you value? What is monetarily valued? What is tangible versus not tangible? And, and so it really speaks to the core of her work. But also, I love that it calls into question today, right? Uh, what a museum can do, right? Um, which we, I love to critique and consider, you know, the possibilities of, of what a museum can do and in terms of what kind of art it can present. And if that means critiquing the sort of um, the notions of what we perceive a museum to be, I love that. I think that I welcome that. So, and, and I'm, I know we'll talk about some other pieces, which will sort of reinforce what I'm saying here. Definitely. Yeah, that theme will continue, I'm sure. It's part of the ex- exhibit, right? <laughs> so, Jean Lau, I want to quote you. And by the way, you did uh, audio for these. Uh, the people going through will, will hear you yourself, right? Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. So that, that's wonderful. So just quoting you, talking about these pieces that you painted on, on the wall, quotes of works by famous artists. Uh, you say, I specifically took works of art, sort of haggish depictions of women by quote-unquote heroic male artists. I started with the idea or the, with the feeling that these were inherently misogynistic, but as I worked on the piece, I came to love these girls. Uh, tell me about this. Well, maybe calling them girls is reinforcing that initial take. You're right, but, right. Um, <laughs> um, so in the act of really, really looking at these paintings in order to reproduce them just got me thinking about them differently and as a viewer, just experiencing them kind of apart from their art history and seeing these crazy-looking faces and the strength and the energy, I just thought, wow, that's a really freeing... If you kind of drop the art history behind it, that's a really freeing way to depict a woman. Yeah, interesting. So several different levels there. Yeah, obviously critique, but maybe some appreciation there as well. Mm-hmm. This uh, installation and others has has a paper mache plant and um, has a rug. Do, do people can people stand on that? I mean, it's, it's a work of art. Do people <laughs> come and stand on that. Well, probably not in the museum context, but um, they can withstand the floor based rugs can withstand someone or people walking on them. And as a younger artist, I was really interested in that um, as a way of. Kind of, yeah, challenging how you experience fine art and, like, forcing the viewer into a real physical interaction with it. But Mm. um, I'll let Katie underline that you probably can't walk on stuff in the (laughs) museum presentation. Yeah, we've had a few conversations, as one might imagine, because um, on the one hand, um, one of these rugs is part of our collection, uh, the one in the Empire-style installation space. 
And, you know, as stewards of art, we want to care for it and make sure it's taken care of in perpetuity. On the other hand, we also want to respect the artist's intention. And so we've had a number of conversations as staff on how to navigate that. And um, so what we've determined is we're adding some signage on the f- directly on the floor. And that's a bit of a compromise in and of itself, right? Um, but we, I don't recall the language we're using on the floor, but something friendly to say this is art. Um, <laughs> and so that um, if someone were to step on it, they're hopefully aware of it. And of course, we have security guards and gallery attendants to let people know. If someone have, has high heels, I think we will certainly make sure they don't step on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's, <laughs> you know, that's an interesting sort of challenge, just, you know, that museums uh working with artists, living artists whose work is intended to be interactive on some level physically, and you know how to negotiate that in a way that both respects the artist's intent while keeping the artwork safe. I had a rug in the kitchen of a place I lived in for years, and it held up really well, but it was quite telling because there was a worn path from the bedroom to the refrigerator. <laughs> ah, <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, you do have those paths. You said earlier the this rug i guess the, those like it you're playing with the idea of fine art right um well decorative arts and fine art i mean what's the cutoff what's what's mm. the determining factor um so that's another thing i'm interested in questioning you know that interest of hers in that arbitrary line or that really doesn't exist very well when you play it out uh, between decorative arts and fine arts sometimes, especially with her work, is really appropriate for our collection and what we're interested in. And um, because she she speaks about this, you know, she's very committed to the craft of her work. And she's utilizing paint as well as creating sculptural objects with paper mache. Right. So paint is traditionally thought of as more of a, you know, sort of high fine art sort of material and and has some, I don't know, uh, some prestige and history that's different than, say, paper mache. Right. Something that you might think of that kids use in a classroom to create or home home kind of materials to fabricate something. or So juxtaposing the materials, even down to the material choices she's using, she is calling on us to consider these interesting questions about perception, just purely based on material and the history in which those hold mentally for us and the way we perceive objects and art. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we are talking with the American artist Jean Lau. Her work revolves around the intersection of popular culture, environmentalism, commerce, politics, and art history. And your place in the multiverse, Jean Lau, is now showing at the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art at USU. It's a survey of her work drawn from the past 17 years, featuring many of her most important installations. We're talking with Jean Lau, and we're talking with Katie Lee Coven, Executive Director and Chief Curator of the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art at Utah State University. And we'll continue this conversation following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from our members and Auto Evolution 
owned and operated by Ron Stagg, keeping Cache Valley automobiles on the road for more than 20 years with service, repair, and maintenance. Located at 347 West Airport Road in North Logan. Information is available by calling 435-753-2521. Did you know that the words lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender are used very infrequently, if at all, in state social studies guidelines across the nation? The exclusion of LGBTQ individuals, issues, and social movements in social studies teaching guidelines has significant implications for students who identify as LGBTQ or other marginalized groups. Researchers in social studies education are working to create more inclusive standards to contribute to a learning atmosphere where all voices and perspectives are valued. Inclusive guidelines support curriculum and instruction that benefits students' physical, mental, and academic health. This segment of Did You Know That? has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Glad you're with me today. I'm talking today with artist Jean Lau, and with Katie Lee Coven, Executive Director and Chief Curator of the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art. There's an exhibition going on right now at the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art at USU. It's called Your Place in the Multiverse, Jean Lau. It's a survey of Jean Lau's work drawn from the past 17 years, featuring many of her most important installations. Jean Lau, I wonder if you would describe for us Discount Barn. I'm looking at it, but maybe you can describe it better than me. <laughs> okay, so let's just start with the walls. They're kind of really loosely and casually painted with a gray design to suggest a, a French, I think, 17th century, basically, decorative interior. And we put up mylar to suggest mirrors or windows. And into this this environment that suggests, you know, ornate, decorative embellishment and taste are gondola shelving units with sort of ridiculous merchandise. Um, push pour om, a men's fragrance, or um, box after box of hair coloring, or waist trimmer, or um, oh, just cookies and soy milk. So kind of like a mishmash of what you'd find at a 99-cent store. So playing with that contrast of, um, oh, might I use the word value? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and as an artist, what does it mean to like criticize consumerism and be someone who makes stuff? Uh, I was kind of exploring that with this piece. I've presented it in several different iterations, and that one really almost made me feel crazy because of the amount of um, objects I made to suggest a discount store interior. Katie Lee Cohen, how does this strike you? Well, what I love about this piece is it's one of the first, it's the first room you encounter when you enter the exhibition. And I think if you were coming to this exhibit, I've spent a lot of time with it. So, but I think if you were coming into this exhibition for the first time, it would 
strike you as, you know, sort of strange and funny and, and really familiar and approachable. Because it is it really reminds you of being in sort of a, a dollar store environment is what she's recreated, but not to the point of making you think you're in that space. As she mentions what is uh, painted on the wall to suggest sort of this sort of 18th century decorative, fancy sort of um, wall embellishments juxtaposed with, you know, signage about price tags and, and then shelving. And so I love that it for people who will come to see the exhibition, you're going to feel really comfortable. (laughs) But then we have to wonder, why do we feel comfortable? And, and also, is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Does it matter? Is it just and is it uniquely? Is it uniquely an American thing? Do all you know, internationally, do discount stores look like this? You know, so anyhow, I, there's Cairo syrup, you know, right when you walk in. <laughs> so that, you know, uh, two stacks, crates of that uh, with some powdered sugar or something like that that are under there. You know, so you're, you're going to see things that also generationally, I think different people respond to differently because uh, I, I can guarantee that, you know, some of our younger like my daughter doesn't know what Cairo syrup is. I don't have any Cairo syrup in my cupboard, but my grandmother did, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. and so so there's aspects of that in it that I love. So one of the things you'll see throughout the entire exhibition, and I hope that listeners are maybe gathering, is that this exhibit really has equal doses of humor as well as you know some more sort of maybe serious points. But the serious points come in sort of slowly and after you initially engage with the the objects. And again, these objects are all painted. So she is a painter, but it's not painting that hits you overhead in that way that's like, oh, you're supposed to appreciate this. It's, oh, this looks really familiar. And then, oh, wow, this is this is familiar, but it's actually not what it seems to be. So so there's a lot of fun and it really does get you thinking about a lot of different topics on a, a lot of hopefully different levels. And that's, I think, the idea. So, Jean Lau, in, in your commentary, you point out that uh, in the middle of the uh, the piece, there's uh, stacks of uh, beer and also huh? exercise equipment. You, you point out that if you have the one, you probably need the other. Tickled me. The push and pull of uh, contemporary existence. Yeah, that's true. Um, I notice on the on the wall here you have you have your you know price markdowns etc. We have a little I don't know commentary. It says trust and accountability seventy percent off. <laughs> um, or confidence is contagious over a, a shelving unit of just nonsense and the price reads um, like a thousand nine hundred dollars. Yeah, right, right. So, <laughs> so taking. Um, Slogans you might find, and then just adding a little tweak so that they're rid- ridiculous. Now that reminds me of of your your books, your book covers. You have, well, these are actual. You have pieces that are they're essentially books, right? They're uh, what you see is the cover. Um, and in this exhibit, I think you have at least one uh, photograph of of a shelf of books. So I've been making three dimensional paper mache books for, gosh. Could it be almost 30 years? Um, and for this exhibit, um, I'm showing six 
prints that I put together digitally. So I took pictures of some extant 3D books and um, collaged them into a digitally created bookshelf with thematically grouped books. And, oh, you know, so one shelf might be women's health and wellness or men's interest or, well, you get the drift. Yeah. And then the titles kind of ping pong uh, back and forth off off of one another. Some are really just funny and some are, I think, heartbreaking if you yeah. if you think about it after the chuckle. So it's a combination of fun and laughter and really some inquisitiveness and sadness. I want to mention a couple of titles. Uh, I think my favorite is Anxiety, the Unexploited Weight Loss Tool. Right. <laughs> now, is, yeah. is that you? Do you come up with these titles, or is these actual books? Um, just once in a blue moon, I use an actual book to keep the viewer unbalanced. So you see a book you know, and then you're, well, I don't like it when you look at an artwork and you, you get the strategy right away. So mm-hmm. throw in a couple things to just make you lose your, your surety about how the thing is constructed or how it's, the thinking is going. Um, but mostly they're made up titles and paired with, paired with imagery that shoves the meaning of the title in an unexpected direction. There's another one here, a smiling couple, knowing when to correct him. That's uh, no. <laughs> I love these. Uh, some some of these really hit you, right? The the title really is juxtaposed with the image. Right. I guess that's why I've stuck with doing the books for so long. There's a lot of pleasure and freedom in doing the text and image combination, and also with the 3D books. After doing like a large room scale installation, it's nice to to do a piece that can just be held in your hand. I think you've done a lot of these. This is something you come back to, I, I think, right? The yeah. Books. Mm-hmm. What is it about the books, do you think? Um, just the ability to playfully kind of dance in a secured, circuitous way around um, topics that I'm concerned about or interested in. Kitty Lee Coven, what's what are your thoughts on the on the books? Um, they surprise you because they, you know, I don't know what the the figure is exactly, but typically people's attention span is not held for very long, even even in a museum context. So these works, you approach, you think, oh, it's not. These are actually sort of the inverted uh, um, sort of installation, if you will, from Discount Barn in that they are not actual bookshelves, but they are rendered or photographed, if you will, sort of bookshelves of books that are then printed and mounted on a wall as a large panel, its own sort of installation. But the objects themselves are actually absent here. And so there's these sort of facsimiles of the originals that she created, right? And um, mm-hmm. and these originals were, of course, her own creations. And even I love that also these uh, the books themselves have been sold, I think, and collected. But in terms of the content, I laugh every time I walk over and start reading the <laughs> titles and looking at the imagery. It honestly, if you if you just need a laugh and um, and. Tom mentioned that he's looking at this work, and I just want to mention that on our website, it's artmuseum.usu.edu, we have both a virtual tour where you can 
walk around self-guided. There are these little circles on the floor and you press those on with your mouse and it takes you in front of these pieces of artwork. So you can truly experience the exhibit from anywhere. It's not the same as visiting in person. Of course, we want you to visit in person. But um, if you want to preview it or if you live, you know, further afield. And also, as Tom mentioned, there's an audio tour um, where Jean's speaking about the works. So you can, you can pull up the audio tour and the virtual tour and have a really nice preview and experience of the work. But I... I, I just, I, these are just, they're endearing. They're also, as she says, some of them are, they're a little gut-wrenching. Some of them, you know, sort of knock you over the head. <laughs> some of them are subtle and take you a minute to, if you're like me, when things go over your head a lot, um, they may take me a minute to circle back and like land in terms of <laughs> realizing what, what, you know, the, the, especially when there's the imagery and the and the text involved. So so they're a lot of fun. And, and that's really, you know, I think it's important in general for, you know, uh, us to both be uh, reflective, but also uh, in terms of the, because there are different topics, these, these bookshelves, you know, women's health or food and wine or, but not to take ourselves too seriously, right? Even, even in the space where it might be a serious conversation, right? Or a serious topic, there are ways to maybe step back and think about that and doesn't have to, to go straight to the sort of divisive or oppositional sort of position. But, but yet one of really, I, I think some of it's also about acceptance, awareness and acceptance of just things that are truly just sort of a reality for better or worse if you will. So um, I love all of that and all of those layers um, that you see in this work. But I guarantee you, if you look at these books as with other parts of the exhibit, you will likely laugh out loud. Mm. Yeah, I I certainly did uh, taking the virtual tour. Uh, So Katie Lee Coven, first of all, tell us general hours for the museum and uh, and this exhibits up into December I think that's right, right. yeah so um, the exhibits on view through December 12th so plenty of time to come and see it um, also on Saturday September 18th if you want to put this on your calendars um, Jean will be visiting and we will have a conversation with Jean at the Wanless Russell Performance Hall and followed by a reception um, so that again is September 18th and Museum hours, um, currently for summer hours, they'll, they may shift when we go into the fall semester here at Utah State, but they are um, Tuesday through Thursday, 10 to 5, Friday, 10 to 7, and so we stay open a little late on Fridays, so if you want to come by after work, um, and we're also open on Saturdays from 10 to 3. If you just joined us, we're talking with the artist Jean Lau, an exhibit of her work, uh, Your Place in the Multiverse is the exhibit that Katie Lee Coven was talking about. And Katie Lee Coven is with us. Uh, she is Executive Director and Chief Curator at the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art. That's on the Utah State University campus. Artmuseum.usu.edu, right? I think, That's correct. Katie Lee Coven, you can uh, check out the virtual tour if you're not able to come to the museum. You're listening to Access Utah. We're going to take another break, and we'll be back with more following this. Did you know that one in four girls is sexually assaulted before age 18? That's an estimated 42 million women in the United States. 
Violence against women remains largely unreported due to the impunity, silence, stigma, and shame surrounding it. I'm Dr. Susan Matson, founding director of the Utah Women in Leadership Project. In our next episode, we'll talk about supporting survivors and ending violence against women. Listen August 2nd at utwomen.org. When I was a sophomore in high school, I accidentally signed up to be in Michaela Poole's newspaper and yearbook class. I immediately had no interest in taking the class and tried to transfer out of it but got lost in the hallway on my way to the office because it was my first day in that building. Good thing for me. Throughout the year, Mrs. Poole helped me become involved in writing articles for the school newspaper. It was so much fun. I had always loved to write, but through her class I learned my true talent and passion in interviewing people and writing stories about things that matter. So many people have a passion for something. They just need the opportunity to do something about it. By donating to the John Morris Scholarship Fund at upr.org, you are the one giving an opportunity to a student journalist like me. You are helping them forge a better future and pave their own path in journalism at UPR. You could give now at upr.org, and thank you in advance. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater in Logan, presenting I Do, I Do, a tender 60-year journey through the married lives of Michael and Agnes, with a score that includes My Cup Runneth Over With Love. Details at utahfestival.org. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Thank you so much for joining us today. And today we are in conversation with American artist Jean Lau, who is an American pop conceptual multimedia artist whose work carefully and humorously unpacks the ironies and challenges of our 21st century culture. Her work revolves around the intersection of popular culture, environmentalism, commerce, politics, and art history. And there's an exhibition going on at the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art on the USU campus. It's called Your Place in the Multiverse, Jean Lau. And it's a survey of Jean Lau's work drawn from the past 17 years, featuring many of her most important installations. So we're talking with Jean Lau, and we're also talking with Katie Lee Coven, who's executive director and chief curator of the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art. So, Katie Coven, you, you said something I wanted to follow up on. You talked about how museum goers maybe are less likely to rush through, but I think we're all prone as a society to short attention span these days. Have you noticed a change in art museum attendees over time, or are they generally take the time to appreciate the art? Oh, great question. Well, with having, you know, lots of things that can garner our attention in many different directions. And our phones often, you know, very close by in our pockets. uh, And we don't want them to die because we, (laughs) in case we need something, right? So there's this sort of, uh, there is definitely a different, um, I think on the one hand, certainly people's sort of expectations of what they want to, to do with their time, whether it's learning, you know, as an art museum, education is really fundamental to what we do, but it's experiential learning. And, and it's really is intended to be a space that you make a choice to take some time and, 
and come and visit, right? But at the same time, it's really easy, I think, some exhibitions more so than others to sort of peruse the artworks, um, not take a whole lot of time, still have a, a lovely experience, but there may be only a couple that really, you know, grab you and, and, and draw you in and you spend some more time with. Whereas I think Jean's work, this exhibition is really addressing that, is very aware of that, aware of, of who the audience is in terms of just contemporary society and people. And, um, and so, and I think that's what makes the work really successful. Not, I mean, whether it were in our museum or, or another space um, is because it, it understands what will draw you in, right? And then it takes you through these other components. So it's certainly something we're aware of. I mean, and, and even when we play at exhibitions, these are things we consider, right? Uh, having virtual tours and audio tours are options that we're adding. You know, virtual tours is something we always wanted to do. And COVID came along and mm-hmm. we immediately <laughs> invested in that software. And now we're doing it for all of our exhibitions. So, you know, if you, if you want to, if you choose to see the exhibition or preview it on a device, you can. Yeah. So we, as a museum, museums are so you know fundamentally, when uh, created to be mm, historically a, a sort of. Uh, I don't like this word, but the more passive experience, if you will, right? You're you're walking through, even though you are engaging, and and. What has worked, just like anything else, right? I mean, learning um, how we teach people, right? Whether at, at any age these days, um, we know that people learn differently than they did a hundred years ago, right? So, we as a museum have to take that into account, and we think about that both in the exhibitions that we choose and and inviting Jean to exhibit, um, and just and 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 all that we do. Jean Lau, I want to ask you a similar question. As an artist, as you think about the audience that's going to experience your art, maybe walk us through that. And, and has that changed over time, your idea of the audience, or, or has the audience changed, do you think, over time? I think of my audience just as contemporary society. Like, my work is almost like, uh, not journalism, but um, so in thinking about my audience, I'm concerned with making the experience of the artwork a pleasure and fun and um, aesthetically, like, rich, yes, not precious. The craft, maybe at a distance, looks um, believable, even though it's these throwaway materials. Um, But approaching, you see the obvious falseness of it. So it's a combination of really just looking at what's going on in the world and what what's interesting to sort of try and talk about and try to do so in a way that engages other people, any any range of people, I would say. Well, the time has flown by. We're coming down to maybe the last five minutes-ish. Um, I definitely wanted to, I'm not sure exactly why this struck me so much, but um, Baby Grand really, really struck me, Jean Lau. Um, <laughs> and it was, it was probably... You know, as as Kaylee Coven is saying, I had one reaction initially, and then I had several other reactions in sequence, which is probably what you're going for, uh-huh. uh, Jean Lau. So d- describe uh-huh. this for us, Baby Grand. I went to my 
dealer, Mark Quint, here in La Jolla, and I said, hey, Mark, how about if I make a baby grand piano that functions as a cooler? He's like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, the idea came to me just as like, this would be really fun to do, this marriage of um, high taste and just a snack bar, basically. It's built so that it can hold ice and cold drinks and potato chips and snacks. Um, so at first glance, it represents um, a kind of stature. And and then it's a snack bar. And then it's literally giving the viewer <laughs> a treat. So an interest in doing something funny, doing something generous, again, playing with notions of taste and hierarchy. And this is funny. I went to a piano store before I started building it to take some pictures. And I'm there at the piano store under the piano taking pictures. And the, the uh, salesman came up and was like, what are you doing? <laughs> and it was exactly what I built. I pictured it in my mind's eye. It's, you know, a baby grand with a, um, like a tree plant next to it. And my husband's like, why are you making a plant? And when I got to the piano store, um, indeed, there was a tree plant next to it. So. <laughs> so, so you made a tree plant. Yeah. Yeah. Paper mache. Yeah. yeah. This. Yeah. It's it's very nice, baby. Grand. The lid is raised, and where you'd look in and see the cords, various snacks, and it's it's cooler. Anyway, Katie Lee Coven. And just so that uh, listeners know, you can take a snack oh, from the baby okay. grand yeah there's so there's some signage there so there's some cheetos and doritos and and one of my favorite moments since this exhibition has opened um some visitors uh, some folks i know who had come to see the exhibition for the first time i walk up to the museum and they're sitting outside at a table enjoying their snacks having just taken them from the baby grand piano and loved the exhibition and they're having you know a diet coke and a you know a, a bag of chips and so you know consumerism is of course a layer throughout this exhibition that's component and and, and truly if you are are, are actively then decide to take a bag of chips you are are signing off to your participation as a consumer, a yeah. full-on consumer in this exhibition. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. So if you come by and you you're hungry, or you know you're hungry, and just remember, hey, there's snacks in the museum, and that gets you over to see the exhibition. That's fine too. Yeah, <laughs> very good. <laughs> we just have uh, you know, three or four minutes left. Katie Lee Coven, uh, any other piece or or installation that you would like to mention here? Um, you know, I think really, I just want to invite people to come and give this exhibition uh, some time and and enjoy it. It's really a, it's a it's a treat. It it really is something that um, I think for every age group, you're going to see something different. Um, you know, there's those there are these shows or these movies, you know, they make that are really for kids, but they they insert all of these things for adults. And so the adults can enjoy it, too. I feel like this is, this is probably the, the opposite where it's more for adults, but there's tons of stuff that kids every time kids come in, I can assure you the baby grand piano is a hot item and wanting to get some treats. <laughs> um, the discount barn, they don't know what to do with because they're like, wait, I know this, but 
wait a minute, why I don't, you know. And so uh, anyhow, it's, it's, a, it's an exhibition that everyone can enjoy. And I would just um, encourage people to come and see it. And just a reminder, too, that our um, exhibitions, our museum admission is free. And um, we have free parking. And we try to make things really accessible for, for everyone. Yeah. Well, Jean Lau, uh, here, here at the end, uh, anything else you'd like to say about the, about the exhibit? Um, just that it was a real pleasure to um, have the opportunity to put this work up. Um, so thank you, Katie. And um, thank you, Tom, for doing this um, chat. Well, my pleasure. Uh, very interesting. Encourage people to go. It's uh, Your Place in the Multiverse, uh, an exhibit of uh, some of the work of Jean Lau, American artist. And that's at the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art on the USU campus and running into December, right? That's right, Katie December Cope. 12th. Um, we've had with us uh, the artist uh, Jean Lau on the telephone. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. What a treat. Thank you. And in studio, uh, Katie Lee Coven with the Norrick Ellis Harrison Museum of Art. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. Thank you for sharing this with your listeners. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. Each summer, as the snowpack dwindles and drought restrictions come into play, most Utahns keep up a small oasis in the desert, their front lawns. This week... Learn why more than half of Utah's valuable household water is used outside to sprinkle this yieldless crop. First this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Utahns love their front lawns. When Mormon settlers moved west, they wanted to recreate the homes they left back east, including their grassy yards. This idea of beauty equals green persisted into the 20th century, and the manicure lawn came to symbolize middle-class prosperity and good hygiene. But the lush landscaping of the east was difficult to replicate in Utah's arid climate and homeowners used water excessively for sprinkling grass. In 1914, Utah towns participated in the first statewide Clean Town Contest. Hosted by the Utah Development League and the State Board of Health, 53 towns entered the contest to improve the state's sanitary conditions. Citizens cleared public roads and made general improvements to public facilities, and towns were graded on their grassy lawns and gardens. This early contest signaled the importance of appearances when it came to Utah's front yards. After World War II, families flocked to the suburbs where neatly manicured lawns symbolized post-war prosperity and neighborhood safety. City codes required lawns to be an appropriate length and free of weeds. Homeowners who did not comply could be reported for ordinance violations. Excessive water use was justified to maintain property values and the status quo. City councils struggled to accommodate the demand for yard water through years of drought, and counties imposed watering hours to help curb usage, but community attitudes toward lawns continued to take priority over water conservation. Throughout later decades of the 20th century, members of Salt Lake's planning and zoning committee revealed a distinct class divide in their approach to neighborhood cleanup. Izzy Wagner, a longtime member of the committee, saw dandelions and weeds as an indictment of the entire west side of Salt Lake City. Wagner asserted, quote, if I had it my way, 
I'd have a law and enforce it. I'd have a law that you can't live in a home unless you take care of your lawn. Times change, however, and new city ordinances encourage water-wise plants. In fact, these days you might find more homeowners in your neighborhood trying to keep up with the Joneses by carefully xeriscaping their front yards with drought-tolerant plants. Find sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss. Next up, it's Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Jen Ashton and Lil Gilbert. Berries and cream. So in my view, berries and cream are the perfect combination, the best food couple. They're just two words that are lovely on their own, but they're taken to another level when they're paired with each other. Berries, how would you describe how berries taste? Um, I would say tart, acidic, fresh. Fresh, yeah, tangy. And cream, rich, smooth, perfect, sweet, and this has been a sweet cream. So after enjoying a berries and cream original, I got to thinking about other famous food couples. Those foods that fit so well together, it just rolls off the tongue. Let's try it. I'll start and you finish. Let's see if we come up with similar combinations. All right, let's give it a go. Spaghetti and meatballs. How about... Salt and, ooh, I'm not sure if you're going for pepper or lime, but I'll take either. Well, lime, I want to come to your house and eat. That sounds pretty good. <laughs> Are we having some uh, carne asada? No. How about meat and potatoes? Mm. I'm from Idaho, so that's a natural. But some foods are not in exclusive relationships. So like what comes to mind when I say potatoes and? Okay, let's think about this one. Potatoes and gravy? Yeah, Okay. I mean, that, that, that comes to my mind as well. Potatoes, they have a few relationships out there. so They're a great base. They are, and of course they go with, made a lot of different ways as well. Um, okay, here's a good one. The kids will get this. Peanut butter and? Jelly, and hopefully grape jelly, because that really is the best one. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. We're going to have to have another discussion another day. <laughs> I'm a berry girl. Um, so uh, I wonder how peanut butter and jelly started. I looked into it. The earliest published recipe for peanut butter and jelly sandwich appeared in Boston Cooking School magazine in 1901. It was a book by Julia Davis Chandler. So about the 119th anniversary of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Wow, that calls for a celebration of some sort, doesn't it? Sounds like a PB&J. <laughs> how about milk and... Cookies, bacon and eggs, burgers and fries. Uh, yeah, that was what came to my mind as well. Of course, there's other breakfast foods like pancakes and syrup. And for the more, those of you hailing from across the pond, fish and chips. All right. So then there's, I think we did pretty well. Yeah, we came up with similar bad. answers. Uh, then there's the weird food couples. You know, those ones that you wouldn't have put together, but they work. So I have a couple ideas. If you have some that you enjoy, love to hear them. But have you ever seen people have fries that they dip in their shake? I've heard of that. I ever tried it? I think I'd be a fan. 
No. I did. I'd say it was okay. <laughs> I don't but know. But to each his own. To each his own. I'm, I'm not one to criticize. Exactly. The textures didn't quite meld to me as much as maybe the sweet with the salty ni- nice, you know. But, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, do your kids dip pizza in ranch? They do. They that's a habit they learned at school. Yes, I it's think the, that's ranch where ranch is ubiquitous. It's like water in <laughs> elementary schools. <laughs> uh, at our house, whenever we have pizza, we always have salad as well. I think it's just that feeling of okay, they're going to get some nutrition, uh, you know, balance in here. And so at our house, it, uh, salad has become known as the annoying cousin to, to <laughs> pizza. <laughs> How about you? Are there any other weird food couples? Well, I don't know that these are weird, but some of my favorite combinations in the world are, um, you know, everyone loves chocolate, of course, but then you add orange to that. Chocolate and orange is one of the most uh, bewitching combinations that I know of. It's something about the, the acidity of the orange with that creaminess of the chocolate, and they're both so sweet, and mm. it's it's delightful. I think uh, cheese can be a really interesting thing to try and pair things with. It's just the contrast with maybe apples or pears that can make it really interesting to your mouth. That may be why some people have actually apple pie with cheese. Right. Uh, or, or a fruit plate that has... Uh cheeses and fruits. Well, whether you're an established couple or it's young love, food is meant to be fun. So get creative, try new pairings, as long as you promise never to make green jello with grated carrots again. Agreed. This is Jen Ashton and Lael Gilbert for another food couple, Bread and Butter. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Golden West Insurance Services, providing Utah State University alumni affordable options on auto, homeowners, RV, and umbrella policies. Available at any Golden West or USU Credit Union branch from Logan to St. George. Details at usucu.org. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.